grateful to be able to jump back into Ephesians chapter 4 as we've been walking verse by verse through this incredible book in the Bible. Um, Pastor Ryan Ivey gave a great word last week on unstoppable unity. Wasn't it good? Yep. And uh, if you missed it, you can go on to walkchurch.com and find it. Uh, But I want us to go ahead and just jump in right where he left off last weekend and continue to get to know God better through this book. This morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to do our best to make our way all the way from verse 7 to verse 12. Now, that is a big hop, step, and a jump for us at Walk Church. Um, We believe every word of God proves true. It's valuable. And it's better to go slower than fast when it comes to unpacking the word of God. There's so much treasures in it. We don't want to miss any. We're going to see how far we get today. And that's one of the beauties of expository preaching is, hey, if we don't get that far, we'll just pick it up next week and keep digging in. But if you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you have one, if not, we got a cheat sheet for you on one of these screens. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. When you get there, say, I'm there. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. If you're hungry for the word of God this morning, say, let's eat. Scripture says, but grace was given to each one of us. Amen? Anybody received the grace of God? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8 says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he had a, led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Verse 9 in parentheses, Paul is being our commentary this morning. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature, of the fullness of Christ. Father, we just pray right now in Jesus' name. We ask for a deposit into our hearts this morning from the word of God. Clarify the gospel again for us. Remind us who we are in Christ. Give us a deeper sense of unity in this place for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to give you a little bit of a refresher, uh, chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Ephesians are, are primarily about theology. So you see about the theology of salvation, the doctrine of being one church around one mission. Um, the, the whole book is theology, but it's primarily this head and heart knowledge. Uh, when you move into the later half of Ephesians, ver- chapters 4 through 6, you get more to the heart and to the hands and to the feet of what we believe. And so chapters 1 through 3 was this good, great refresher, this great reminder, okay, this is who we are in Christ. This is who we're supposed to be in Christ. And now what Paul is doing here in the later chapters, he's saying, I'm moving away from just the why and the how to actually what we're called to do, Right? It's the hands and the feet of what God is calling us to do. And verses 1 through 6, scream this word, unity. So that we're called to be unified. It talks about the similarities we have. Last week we talked about one hope, amen? One Savior, one baptism, one Lord, one faith in Jesus. 
It's not that we're closed-minded. It's just that there's only one, right? And that's what it tells us there. It says that we're called to be unified and that we're, we should be eager to maintain unity. Eager means zealous, means you're going for it. You're taking the step. You're initiating unity, something that we're, we're called to be eager to. Now, verse 7 leads us to a new component that we see here where we, we, we not only see the, uni- the things we're unified around, we actually see some diversity that we can have in our unity. Let's go ahead and look at verse 7. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I want to just highlight these two words really quick, but grace. As I, as I was getting ready to, to study and work on this message, I was just stopped by, but grace. That God would say, don't rush past the but grace, amen? That God, in his kindness, has lavished upon us here this morning a whole lot of grace. In fact, right now in this moment, spiritually speaking, there is a waterfall of grace crashing down on us. Now, maybe you're not sure what grace means. You could have, when I say grace, that's a loaded word that could be defined differently by each person in the room. Some of you, when you hear grace, you think, oh, yeah, that's what we do before we eat dinner. We say grace. Uh, For some of you, grace may be a a, a skill in motion, like that person was graced with their gifting. Grace may be a song. Grace may be a name of somebody. But what is God talking about when he says grace has been given to us? That's what verse 7 teaches us. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The NLT translation uh, gives us a little bit more clarity as to what this verse is saying. We'll go ahead and throw it up here on the screen. It says it like this. However, each has given, however, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. <clears throat> the reason why I share this verse with you, just to give you a little bit of insight into the verse, is because Paul's saying that, that Christ has been very generous with us and that he's given each one of us a gift, and he's done it through his grace. Does that make sense? That God has looked upon you, and he didn't just save you, because that's grace. But he's even said, I'm going to save you and give you a gift. That's grace. Grace by definition. Let me give you a definition for the word grace. It's the Greek word charis. Everybody say charis. Oh, you just learned some Greek this morning. So grace means charis, this noun. It's an undeserved gift from God. Grace, by, by definition, the right definition of grace is an undeserved gift from God. That though we didn't deserve it, he still gave it. Amen? Like God doesn't say, I'm going to give you this grace if that's not grace. Grace, by definition, is I don't deserve it. So some of you feel like you get into this place where you sinned again. And you're like, man, God, I don't deserve you to forgive me. You don't. That's grace. It's an undeserved gift from God. And grace should make us appreciate him so much more. I believe that in the scriptures, we actually see three different ways that God dispenses grace. That right now... The grace-giving, generous God who we just read about 
is giving out three types of grace, three undeserved gifts. All right, I want to walk, walk you through these. These will be some theology for you. The first one is what we call common grace, that God right now gives common grace. And maybe you would say in your heart and mind, you say, man, prove it to me. All right, ready? One, two, three, let's breathe. <sighs> Did you feel the common grace? Did you notice how God just lets you do that? There are some people around the world that didn't wake up this morning. There's some people this morning that have not been able to enjoy the common grace of breathing. The reality is, right now, our sovereign God has a bucket load of common grace on this world, doesn't he? Think about it like this. Why does the ocean just go right up to the edge and not just keep going? Have you ever thought about that? Who controls that? Who controls that? How come all these bees around the bushes that are in the pollen right now making all of us sneeze don't just say, you know what, let's just run up in Schofield and sting everybody in the church. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? The, the reality is there is a common grace all around us, isn't there? If God took his common grace hand off of this world it would be so chaotic. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us that one day he will. Right? And one day, and on that day, the dogs are going to turn at you differently. And the, way, the, the waters are going to not stop at the right place. And the sun isn't going to rotate the same way. And the, like, see the common grace of God that the, he's orbiting everything perfectly for sinners. Like, majority of people in Las Vegas have rejected Jesus. Like 90% of the people today don't go to church and don't care about it. They would actually think we're foolish for doing what we're doing here today. And God's still saying, I know, and I'm still going to wake you up. I'm going to still allow the cars to work. I'm going to still put the sun out on you. I'm even going to let you work your job. I'm going to even give you different space and different, different temporary pleasures. I'm going to give you restaurants. and all, all of that is common grace from God. That's God saying, even though you've rejected me, I'm still going to lovingly grace. For example, God could make it rain and make it keep raining until the rain kills all of us. He did that once, didn't he? Called a flood. We teach it in, in kids' ministry, but it's probably not the most friendliest story. <laughs> Noah's Ark. It's God saying, I'm going to stop giving so much common grace. But in the meantime, his common grace should make us appreciate him. Amen. We should go there with people that don't know Jesus and be like, man, listen, God's being a whole lot of graceful to you right now. It would be best that you get to know him. That's one way that God dispenses grace in this moment today, just by the fact he's allowing us to breathe. But the second way is known as saving grace. Saving grace. Uh, we see saving grace on display in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Let's just go ahead and go back a year Tell me if you remember these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. You did not save yourself, friend. You did not earn your salvation. Hear me when I say that. And that's a good, good point to say amen. Because if you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. If you didn't work hard for it, you can't fall down the ladder that you worked for. The fact is, one day, God showed you not just common grace. Friend, he showed you saving grace. 
Like you were sitting in your common grace. Hey, two people are clapping. I'm gonna clap with y'all because I need this message for myself. I do. See, one day God showed you common grace. He woke you up. He even gave you ears that worked. And he gave you a mind that was able to comprehend. Not only that, he put somebody in front of you that shared the gospel, the good news. And it was in that moment that he unlocked a gift. Watch it. Look, not your own doing. It's a gift. It's grace. Grace is an undeserved gift. So God allowed your dead mind and heart to actually believe how it's supposed to in Jesus through faith. So there's this tunnel of faith that goes up to Jesus who's died and rose. His name is victory. And when you place your faith into the resurrected Jesus, all of a sudden you're saved. And you're being saved. So you're saved and you're continuously being saved. That's called saving grace. If you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. You would turn away from him. <laughs> if you could earn it, you could possibly say, Austin, I saved myself. You could be tempted to think, yeah, I went to church. I heard the gospel. I responded in faith. I did that myself. I want to boast. But Ephesians 2 says nobody can boast because you didn't save yourself. You were saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Amen? We just sang that. Amen? We just sang that. For, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a good reminder for us. Because if you're saved today and you have a relationship with Jesus, Saved means that you've placed your faith in him, not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge. You've believed in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, rose from the grave 2,000 years ago, is ascended into heaven, and is right now interceding for us on our behalf and will one day be coming back again. You, you've put your faith in that good news message, right, that all your sins are forgiven and completely, you're completely free of that. If you put your faith in that message, you're, you're saved by all those gifts and so therefore tomorrow when you blow it again and you sin again and you fall into that temptation again, it's in that moment that you don't say, oh, crap, I'm not saved. But it's in that moment that you remind yourself, no, I am saved. And let, let, let that grace be the thing that motivates you to get back on the horse and ride again. Amen? There's too many people getting kicked out by the enemy, getting stomped out by the enemy, and he's just saying, hey, you're not really saved. You're not really saved. So you messed up again. When our mess ups should just point us back to the cross, back to Jesus, and lead us to repentance. It's his grace and kindness that lead us to say, no, sin, you're not even close. I love the song we just, we just sang, right? Your love is so great and nothing compares. We got to get to this place where we start looking at sin, sexual sin, prideful sin, lustful sin, thievery. Uh, heart sin, mind sin, and we just start to think and just say, man, you're, you're, you're so weak compared to God. Like, God is so much better than you, and I'm going to walk in that. I've never committed sin in my life and left like, yeah, I'm glad I did that. I always feel worse, right? Like, let's start feeling better by stop sinning, amen? Let that be the message. It's his grace. It's called saving grace that he's dispensing toward us who would believe. The third grace that we see in the scriptures is called ministry grace. That's the grace that Paul's talking about here. 
So we see common grace, we're breathing, we're making it. Praise the Lord, God's been kind to us. We see saving grace through Ephesians 2 and John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You'll be saved. That's saving grace. Now, Ephesians 4, 7, he gives even more grace. Amen? He gives ministry grace. There's three different levels of grace happening. Let's look back at verse 7. By grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this right here, this grace, this isn't talking about saving grace. Ephesians 2 was talking about saving grace. This isn't talking about common grace. Common grace is all around us. That's for lost people and saved people. Praise God for it. But this is ministry grace. A different type of grace that is for everyone. Did you catch that? Let's look at it. Let me go ahead and put it in bold for you. But grace was, say this with me, given to each one of us. Point at the person next to you and say, that's you, man. (laughs) That's you, you, and you. It doesn't say grace was given to pastors. Come on, somebody. Amen. It doesn't say grace was given to the rabbis. It doesn't say grace was given to the religious elite. It doesn't say grace was given to those who are holier than thou. It doesn't say grace was given to those who have perfect church attendance. It doesn't say grace was given to those who tithe more than the next person. It says grace was given to each one of us. That means grace is given for you and for me according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's given that to us. Tony Maritas, he says this well in his commentary. He says, this is not saving grace, but ministry grace. It's grace to serve and build up the body. It's this reality that you at some point say, you know what, man, God's given me grace to serve and build this body too. I thought I was a nobody. I thought I didn't have a chance. I thought I was just supposed to sit here and attend and let everybody else do the work. But God has given me a grace gift too. And I might have a part to play in this game as well. This is not just saving grace, friend. This is ministry grace. One of my favorite verses of scripture is John chapter 1, verse 16. It's talking about Jesus. This is the intro of Jesus. Not every a gospel book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has a Christmas story, right? For example, John doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus. What John tells us is that from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. But doesn't that hit you really quick? That we've received grace, common grace, and then more grace. Upon that, saving grace, ministry grace. Ministry grace for us, this upon grace I want to talk about what the upon grace could mean. Could mean that God has a gift in store for you. Let's keep reading in our Ephesians text. Let's go ahead and make our way into verses 8 through 10. It says that according to Christ's gift, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill 
all things. Now, this is a chunk of scripture where we just go, what the heck just happened? I was tracking with you about the ministry grace, and then all the ascended, descended stuff threw me off. Hopefully, the Lord will give us some clarity through the preaching of his word. It's really interesting, this transition right here. Paul says, therefore, it says, whenever you see a therefore, it says, be reminded the New Testament authors always validate and affirm the Old Testament writings. Paul is saying, hey, look, Ephesians, y'all get it. Y'all know the Old Testament. Y'all know the left side of your book. For example, in Psalm 68, verse 18, it says when he ascended, right? So let's go ahead and look at this prophetic psalm together. This psalm, this psalm that David wrote, it was a song, a, a, a poem that David wrote talking about the Lord being victorious, that the Lord is a triumphant God, that whenever the Lord goes to battle, he always comes out on top. And one of the things that David says in Psalm 68 is that you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellions, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, Paul draws from Psalm 68, and he pulls this prophetic word about Jesus and he says, this verse was actually talking about Christ, that he would ascend on high, which he did, didn't he? Right? Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave. He gave high fives to all the disciples, and he said, all right, I'm going up. Now you guys have been given a gift to do ministry. Right? Jesus, think of it as this battle that he fought. See, oftentimes in the Old Testament, and even in this culture 2,000 years ago, what would happen is there would be these big military wars, right? And the army would go in to battle, and what would happen is if they came out victorious, they would grab a whole bunch of stuff as gifts to bring back home, the spoil. They'd come back, and they'd say, hey, man, we, we had a crazy battle. Here's a helmet to show you. Here's your, here's your gift. Here's a sword. We, we found some money. <laughs> you know, we've, we found some gold. It's kind of how the, 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 the protocol worked for battle. The scripture tells us and reminds us, and what Paul says in Ephesians 4, is that Jesus came to earth to battle. Don't we see it? Did Jesus ever have like a week that wasn't like battle? Like he was born and Herod was trying to kill him. Like they had to scoop him up and take him to Egypt. They found out there, then all of a sudden he had a dream. He was on his way back. Now he's in Nazareth. Now he's in Galilee. Now he's growing up. He gets baptized the week after his baptism. He's in the wilderness. Satan's right there to meet him, tempting him to turn away from God and sin. Don't you know the word says this? Jesus says, actually, the word says this. You got to know your Bible, friend. The enemy knows it too. We love to twist it and deceive it. And, and my brothers and sisters who recently got baptized, be ready to be in the war. Literally the next day, Jesus was in the wilderness after his baptism modeling spiritual warfare. You should expect it. Have your sword out for battle. Jesus did to the point where he was in the garden the night before he was betrayed, sweating drops of blood in battle, in prayer. In this warfare, Jesus then would push through the battle. He would never give in, never be defeated. It's who he is. He would get crucified to the cross, dying a sinner's death, right? All along, he's winning this battle. 
And then Jesus would rise from the grave. Happy Easter, amen. We're less than a month away from Easter. Let's get excited about this good news. Come on, right? He's risen. You can believe it. And what happens is he then declares victory over sin and death, and he begins to float up into heaven. He ascends into heaven. Now you would say, well, Jesus, where's our gifts? You did all that. Didn't you leave us any gifts? Paul's saying, heck yeah, he did. He's got gifts from the battle. They're ministry gifts. We see it here. You ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellions that the Lord God may dwell in. Let's look back at our verses in, uh, in, in Hebrews 4. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in, uh, in, uh, in Ephesians 4, right? So you see Paul quoting this. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions? What that means, there's, this is a largely debated scripture. Some believe that this means that Jesus descended onto earth, which he did, amen? Jesus first had to descend to humble himself to be a baby before he could ascend, right? Some would say into the lower regions of the earth means that Jesus went to hell. I, I, I don't quite know exactly what that's saying there. All I know is if Jesus did make a quick stop in hell, it wasn't to be burned or to suffer. It was just to go give one extra stomp to the enemy, amen? Just like one extra like crush. Like, hey, y'all, just give me a quick second. <laughs> you know, like, I told you you're a loser, right? That, if Jesus stopped in hell, it doesn't say he went to hell. And some would say, oh, Jesus went there to snatch the keys of the kingdom. We, there's no verse that says that. Jesus already has the keys of the kingdom. Right? In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, he looked at the thief next to him. He said, today you'll join me in paradise. So Jesus wasn't in hell for three days. Just know that. He descended onto the earth, and, and maybe he went even below that into the demonic Hades world, and it was in that time that he just he preached the gospel, stepped on Satan's head, crushed his head one more time, and then ascended in victory. That's who our God is. Does that make sense? So that's what Paul is saying there. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So he quotes Psalm 16. And now Jesus, right, I want you to envision Jesus. He's now today on his throne. Now listen to me, church. What does the Bible often call the throne? The throne of? Oh, man. Yeah, come on, help me. The throne of? That should remind us that Jesus is on his throne dispensing grace. Why do we call it the throne of grace? Right? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us with confidence draw near to the, say it with me, the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need, which we should take advantage of that verse. Amen? Cash in on that verse, like all day long. Cash in, draw near, draw near, and draw near. God's not mad at you. He's actually inviting you because he's sitting on a throne of grace. He's ready to give you mercy. He's ready to give you grace, especially when you need it, which is all day, every day. Amen? <laughs> so just be reminded, be reminded of that. Jesus is on the throne of grace, dispensing grace, dispensing common grace, dispensing saving grace, and dispensing ministry grace. 
Now, what type of gifts for ministry has Jesus given his church? It's a good question to ask. Verse 11 takes us there. He gave the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. We see this here. We call it the apest. Everybody say apest. Apest. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Let me talk to you really quick about the apest. The apest is important for us to, to know. Some scholars believe that this verse, verse 11, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 11, this is the heartbeat of the book of Ephesians, that this is the turning point, this is the game changer. It's funny because each chapter says they have that one verse, that that's that moment. This might be the one here, that he gave the apostles, the prophets, uh, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, the apest. Now, I want you to hear about what this means. Apostles... Uh, what is what I would call the, the blueprint vision thinkers. The apostles in the New Testament were the ones that were commissioned and sent by Jesus himself with the vision to get the job done. So these are the people that led on the front end. They would lay out the blueprint and say, okay, here's what it's going to look like to build this house. There's the door. There's the space. This is vision. Here's what we need to do. Here's what it's going to look like when it's done. Now, I'm not going to necessarily do it, but here's what it's going to look like. You have to have a vision, amen? Right? Proverbs says people perish without a vision. Or the ESV says people cast out restraint where there is no vision. In other words, people say, you know what? I'm not going to get in on it. I'm not going to, be, I'm not going to own the vision if there's no vision to own. So we need the apostolic function, and the 12 disciples of Jesus were the first apostles called out and sent, and then you also add the apostle Paul and some other people in the New Testament. Today, I would say theologically, there's no more living apostles because an apostle had to have a direct connection with Jesus. Even the apostle Paul had to fight and argue his way for his apostleship. In 1 Corinthians, he's saying, I promise y'all, I'm a real apostle. Jesus knocked me down in the book of Acts. He appeared to me in this light, which therefore means I'm an apostle too. And they were like, all right, we're going to let you pass, Paul, right? But that doesn't mean that the function of the apostolic ministry gift is dead, that the function of apostolic ministry blueprint vision is still very much alive. So you can have an apostolic gift on your life. It means that you always just keep having vision and dreams and ideas, and like, man, I got, this, I got this idea. I got this vision inside my heart. I can't escape it. But here's the reality. In order to live out vision, you need others to help you bring it to life, amen? So then there's prophets. The prophets are the ones who listen closely to the directions, amen? They're the ones that are like, okay, let's lay out the directions. Let's not just start building this thing. Like, I, sometimes I struggle with this one. I'm ready to, let, let's build this uh, shelf. And my wife is like, hey, like, let's look. A goes to B, B goes to C, D goes to E, and then I have to do it all over again. Amen, right? Any of y'all like me? That's just me, right? Right? Prophets, listen closely. The, the prophets are usually the one in the group that says, can't we pray more? Like, we're, like man, we've been praying a long time now. <laughs> God's speaking. 
Let's listen. The prophets are the one that love to dive into the word and get the heart of the Father. Let's soak in his presence and let's listen closely because we don't want to move out of step from the Lord. Amen? It's a prophetic function. Uh, I believe the prophetic function is still alive in the church. I don't think that there's any more people that have a name tag that says Prophet Hyden or Apostle Hyden. I don't think that those functions, that th those two gifts function that way anymore. Like nobody's going to rewrite the Bible. Amen? There's no more thus saith the Lord verses uh, in our life because the canon's closed, the Bible is complete, and it's good and perfect for us. We're not called to add to it or take away from it. So when we're prophesying, we're prophesying out of the word of God. But we can still listen to the Holy Spirit's voice because the Spirit speaks and the sheep listen, amen? And he may impress something on your heart to build somebody else up. So when you give somebody a word, so for example, Pastor Dean, if you give a word to Pastor Dean, it's always to encourage and build him up and never say, the Lord told me this, but maybe you could say, I feel an impression from the Lord, this, and you can test that. And how do we test it? We test it with the word. If it doesn't build up and encourage, it's not from the Lord. If it doesn't align in some way with scripture, it's not from the Lord. But if it does, share that word. There's been people throughout my Christian life who have came up to me and said, man, I just sensed the Lord uh, just impressing this, uh, putting this on my heart for you. It's a verse. And it was in that moment that I really needed that. Has anybody ever had a moment like that? Right? This could be a prophetic moment right now where you need, people come up to me all the time and say, man, was that word for me? Because <laughs> I felt like you're speaking right to me. There's a prophetic function today that God takes his word and accomplishes it. But next we have evangelists. Evangelists are the people in the group that are like, can we just stop praying and reading the Bible and go tell somebody already? Y'all know some people like that? They're like, hey, look, why do we even need to meet? Let's go into the city and let's go get more people. And the prophets are like, well, wait, 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 wait. You, the more people, you, we got to listen now. And the apostles are like, well, wait, wait, we got to stick to the plan, y'all. We got a plan. We got a plan, right? The evangelist is like, the plan is to tell people about Jesus, right? They go gather the pieces, right? If you have a study where you got the apostle and the prophet there alone, right, they just got the blueprint and they're looking closely at it and they go, hmm, man, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's a good word right there. Ooh, that's going to look good one day. Yeah, I like how you built that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, that's it. That's all, that's all it will be. Let's go around. Hmm, good. That's good. That's how some of our Bible studies are. Hmm, that's good, man. That's good. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. No, no, no. We're not going to invite anybody else. We're not going to invite nobody else. Let's just have our, mm, that's good moment, right? The advantage is like, time out. We need some more people here. Praise God for the evangelists in the room that want to get out and share the gospel. Mind you that these are just functions of the gifts. We're all called to have an evangelistic spirit. We're all called to share our faith. The problem is only 1% of the church ever shares. And that's the mission that God has given us. Now, listen, then there's the shepherds, right? They work on the stones. They, they mold. They're like, all right, evangelist, I'm glad that you brought back all these stones. But some of those are some messed up stones. Like, that thing ain't going to fit in the house. That stone needs to be molded and shaped and carved. And the apostle is not always the best person to do it, and the prophet isn't always the best person to do it. Let me handle that. Let me shepherd a little bit. Let me, let me softly direct. 
Let me, let me mold and smooth out some of those rough edges so that you can be fit to be your rightful place in the house. We need shepherds in the church as well. And some people just have that function of shepherding, don't they? You ever met somebody who can just sit there, just cross their leg and say, man, just go ahead and share more. I just want to listen. <laughs> man, I need some more of that right there. I'm like, in 10 seconds, I'm like, ah, right? But some people, like my brother Joey, has such a shepherding gift. My wife has a great shepherding gift. Other people in our church have a great gift to listen and share in a shepherding way, right? They're not rushed. They care more about people getting to the right place rather than, uh, than, than quantity. It's about quality, amen? It's about shepherding, pastoring is what other translations say. They work on the stones. They help bring life to what the evangelists are bringing to the table. And then lastly, there's the teachers, right? The teachers are the ones that are like, hey, can we like open up the Greek? Like, can we get to the, can, like my man Jason gave me a yeah over there. He's in a, he wants to talk about the deep stuff, the apologetic stuff, amen, right? I want to go deep. I want to go deep, deep. I want to swim in the deep end, right? I want to get into the nitty-gritty works of the scripture. I want to go historical. I want to go theological. I want to have doctrine. I want to go deep into the teaching because if you miss that, doctrine is so important. If you miss it just slightly, you'll have a cult. That's how all the cults got started. They just missed it a little bit. That's why theology and teachers are so important. you got to have teachers of the word. But do you get what I'm saying? You need all five. In most churches, you only get two and a half. Most churches, you got teachers, you got pastors, and you got a couple evangelists. That is a half, that's a broken church. I want to go five for five, amen? We need prophetic function. We need apostolic function. We need evangelistic function. We need shepherding function. We need teacher function. Now, here's what I want you to know. That in this church, I mean, all of us in this room, all of us, somewhere fit into these five. You just have to figure out where you are. And we, want, we even want to help you do that. What, what's one way to maybe do that? I like how... Warren Wiersbe says it. He says, how does the believer discover and develop his gifts? By fellowshipping with other Christians in the local assembly. Gifts are not toys to play with, amen? They are tools to build with, right? And if they are not used in love, they become weapons to fight with. What we need to do is we need to identify our gifting and then use it to build. Identify your gift. If you're more evangelistic, we need to let you be evangelistic. You need to be out sharing. Use that gift. If you're more teacher-like, we need to create space for you to teach because that's robbing our church of your gift if you're not using your teacher function, right? If you're more apostolic and you got vision and dreams, we need to hear that. Like for me, I've had people come alongside me over the years, and I've just done this, right? Nina, you, you, you've seen me do this. I'll just say, hey, to people I trust and people that are close in my life, I'll say, hey, out of the five functions of Ephesians 4.11, what do you th- see are my primary ones? Where do, you, where, where do you see it in me? And what people have told me often is they say, you have apostolic gift because you always have vision, Right? You, you, you continue to just always just have more dreams and vision and passion, and you got evangelistic function, right? You want to be out. I mean, it's hard for me to send an email. It's hard. 
I'm just saying, it's a weakness I have to get better at. Right? And I'm, I'm, there's other people that are much better at that. Right? But for me, I found that these are my two lanes I got to run in. I got to be out. And I got to have vision. Because these are what I feel like the Lord. Now, other people have different function. And you got to use that gift. And sometimes it just takes coming up to somebody you love or trust, like one of our pastoral team members, and say, hey, you know me. I go to your charge group. What do you think is my primary? And if you don't have that answer, let's try to get there. Let's start praying about it. Amen? Trying to figure out what that is because I want you to know this. Each person in the room has a gift to bring to the table. Amen? And each gift, I'll close with this. Each gift leads to verse 12, and I'm going to finish up. Man, I could go deeper into this, but we're just going to pause right there. We're going to jump back in next week. Amen? Verse 12 says, all those gifts, the apest, is there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now listen, again, who's the saints? It's a football team in New Orleans. No, I'm just playing. The saints (laughs) is us. We are. Who's supposed to be doing the ministry? We are. are. Come on, say it with me. Who's supposed to be doing the ministry? We are. are. One more time. Who's supposed to be doing the ministry? We're called to equip the saints. We're equipping each other for the work of the ministry. It doesn't say that the apest does the ministry. It says the apest is equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. The word ministry is the Greek word diakonos. It's where we get the biblical word deacons. Its definition means to serve. Who's called to serve? We are. are. Amen? We're called to equip the saints, the church, for the work of serving, for building up the body of Christ. Amen? When we do our job, we function in our gift, we serve the church, we serve where God's placed us, man, we start building up the body of Christ to be a strong church a strong house where evangelists can invite people, pastors can teach people, right? Uh, prophets can pray, you know, apostles can have vision, right? All that stuff can happen in the church, amen?